I said, I have facts. There's 796 deaths. I have them here. They're ages of the children from infants up to three and four years. And I said, they're, they're missing. Why isn't anybody horrified? Why aren't people coming together and coming to the site? Why isn't the church ringing me? Why aren't the Bon Secours ringing me? I said, there's a cover up here. There has to be. So we ploughed on anyways. And finally, then I, I was able to prove to my best ability that there was those children are not buried in the tomb graveyard. They're not in the local graveyards. They're not in the county graveyards. I said, where are they gone? You know, I mean, a full year passed with me struggling, trying to get authorities and the church and the Bond Support Sisters to get some answers. But as we know, it was only when the, the story went nationwide and worldwide that the powers that be had to step up and say something. It took a year and a half nearly struggling to get this out there. When she signed up for an evening class in local history, Catherine Corliss had no clue where that decision would take her life. The tutor taught the class to see history all around them and to dig deeper and ask why. It's from here, this really small beginning, that she would start to research and write about the tomb mother and baby home in Galway. A place she had passed uh, as a child every single day. A place in which she would slowly uncover a dark secret that had been kept for many, many years. The bodies of 796 babies buried together in a mass grave that appeared to be a sewage tank. Catherine has made finding out who these children were, how they got there, and who was responsible her life's mission. The fight, the courage, and the work this has taken can't be underestimated because every step of the way, along with the shock and disbelief, she has been met with apathy, disinterest, aggression and dismissal. I had the chance to sit and talk to her about the path that she's been on, where it all started, the reasons she won't give up and the dismal attempt by the Irish authorities to deal with this case and where it goes from here. The book she has written is out now everywhere and all the royalties from it go to the Tiernan Oak Orphanage. Uh, We're making this episode available on all platforms in full, uncut, for a bunch of reasons I think you'll understand when you listen to it. It's the Catherine Corliss episode of An Irish Man Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a f***ing job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Catherine Corliss, it is fantastic and a real privilege and honour to have you 
on the Irish Man Abroad podcast. Your book, Belonging, a memoir of place, beginnings and one woman's search for truth and justice for the tomb babies is out right now wherever anyone gets their books, whether they're into reading them on a Kindle or having the hard copy in their hand. I'd really recommend the hard copy. It is it is a lump of a thing. It's it's a it's a it's a good decent sized book which immediately brought me back to you know your your start on this path being this evening course that you took uh, in local history tell us about walking in the door that evening and i guess the the power of a truly great teacher in that moment well charlotte uh, i remember it very well uh, first of all, I saw the advertisement in our local uh, newspaper, the Chum Herald, uh, about evening classes that were starting, more or less sort of in the next townland. So I said, that's ideal now, because um, before this, I had been doing a bit of family research, you know, just um, hmm. on family, family history trees and uh, my own family tree. And I was getting stuck quite a lot. And I figured, OK, maybe I'll find a two, few tools here to help me to source out uh, some more information. So uh, I answered the ad and I got a place on the, um, I think it was about 15 or so that were on the course. Hmm. So that really started me out now. It was a bit daunting for me because uh, I'd never really been outside that much, you know, with uh, communicating with people or it was mainly with children and uh, housekeeping and farming. Yes. So it was a bit daunting to go out in the middle of people and, and begin talking to them. Um, so that's really how it started. And um, what possessed you to, to, like, we've all got an interest in our own family tree, but I guess the local history thing, I, I think I read that you believe your interest goes back to July 21st, 1920, and an incident that took place with the RIC. Can you tell us about that? Because I was interested to learn that uh, you know, your father's brother and his involvement that day and how you kind of trace back this passion that was in you for history uh, to that day. Uh, that's right, Charlotte. Uh, well, I suppose uh, I wouldn't have had that many conversations with my father over the years because he'd always be on the land and he'd be always talking about sheep and cattle to my mother and that it was all fair and firm. Mm talk and uh, as he got older then I suppose um, I used, I'd always visit him on a Sunday and uh, he, used, we used, he used to talk a lot about his, his uh, young days in, uh, and the troubles I mean he was born in 1902 and uh, he grew up really and truly uh, you know during the civil war and all that and uh, I was just amazed that um, after that he actually stood in the town of Tum and uh, the morning after uh, the place was burned by the Black and Tans, and he said the buildings were still smouldering. It was a Sunday morning and he went into Mass. And that's the only time he'd be in tune would be on a Sunday for Mass. And he said he remembers seeing the town hall smouldering. The smoke was still billowing out of it. And that was my connection with, uh, I mean, the Troubles, as they called them at the time, and the War of Independence and the Black and Tans. And uh, I found that fascinating. And he used to talk about his brother, Michael, whom I never met. I, I met some of his uh, grandsons, all right. They, they come home um, every now and mm -hmm. then. But he talked about his brother, Michael. He was two years older than my father. And he was in the local, the, the fighters, mm. the, the, the ones that the IRA, well, the IRA at that time. And um, he, he was a member of that. And he remembers way back, must be 19... 
must be 1922 or so, when the, or 21, when the Black and Tans were around. And uh, one of the Black and Tans called to the house looking for him. And um, of course, it said he wasn't there, but they went in and searched the house and found him. And they dragged him outside and they gave him an unmerciful beating. Now, my father witnessed that. And he used to talk about him and how he had to he had to go on the run then, as they call it. So what Michael did, soon after that, he had to, he said he'd go to America because it was, he had an, we had an aunt over there. So uh, he had to go in through Canada, though, because uh, it was easier to get into America that way. You go to Canada for a year or so, or a few years, sure. and then you make, make your way back down to New York, where he stayed, and he never came home again. So I suppose that really got me interested in the local stuff, that history was all around us, mm. and not just in history books or in museums. So but, it was much more interesting when you know the place and you know the people. Yeah, and I think a lot of us will have that experience of history coming alive when you realize how connected it is to people you actually know that these aren't yeah. just stories in books. These are absolutely you know, you know there's there's a human being who you yeah. can relate to and also quiz like, as you say, these people of the time and these things that were matter of fact in the era, yeah. you, it took you some prying and some some pressing. And I can see how, you know, that would awaken a part of you that thinks, wow, if you if you ask the right questions of the right people, you can get, uh, you know, untold information. Well, absolutely, Gerald. It's very, very important how you approach people. You 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 more or less talk about the weather first, as everybody does in Ireland. And then you go on to maybe just a few things about the family or something. And then you slowly maybe kind of hint at something and you kind of you try and give them a lead and, and you'll know by then whether they want to talk to you or not mm. or, or because the worst thing you can do is just jump in because people will just clam up and they'll tell you nothing 100%. so uh, <laughs> yeah. talking to people i got a lot of you know people that say to me i'll tell you this now but don't say i said it <laughs> there's a lot of that now in my research 100 <laughs> and it is yeah, a, yeah. it is a west of ireland kind of an Irish thing. We we had a, a separate series here at Irishman Abroad called The Irishman Behind Bars. And among the, you know, the Mam Trasna murders were one of the yeah. cases that we covered. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the difficulty in prizing information yeah. from Irish people of the era that, yeah. you know, you're being embedded in the community and understanding that, as you say, you don't bluntly come out and ask the question. Yeah. There is the investigative side to yeah, this. Absolutely. That doesn't start with those conversations. I mean, I, what I love about the book is hearing your life story that builds, you know, the background and our yeah. understanding of how a woman such as yourself could arrive at uncovering this massive scandal. As a child, you had a fair bit of gumption it's fair to say. Would you would you agree with that? That you, you oh, I would. Yeah. Indeed, I would. Yeah, because uh, I could never let anything go. If somebody gave an, an untruth, I would uh, have to correct it. And I suppose many times I get into trouble for, you know, I had this thing that I had to. It had to be exact. It had to be right. I couldn't bear any bins in a story or anything. And um, that landed me in a lot of trouble with my mother because uh, she didn't want uh, me asking questions about her. She was a very private uh, woman. She never talked about her past. So that's really landed me in a lot of trouble. But the more she evaded me, the more I pressed her. 
So um, at that time, I was only a child. You know, there was no beating around the bush. I just had to, I'd ask her out straight, uh, you know, you don't talk about your grand, about your parents, ma'am. I don't know them. You, where did your family go? And I mean, that was her big secret and there was no way she was going to break in that secret. So it landed me in trouble quite a lot. I mean, a lot of people will, again, try and understand this passion that's in you to find justice for these babies. And a lot of it is traced back to your mother and what she's lived through. Would you agree? Well, absolutely, Jarlett, because uh, as I said, I, I was always aware of her from when I was little because I did love her and I, I did admire her greatly. She was a, a very selfless woman and I admired her for that. She'd always put herself last in everything and looked after everybody. And, you know, she'd always be last in line to to have anything, anything fancy or anything like that. And I mean, your mother didn't have an easy life. You know, she we were trying to establish exactly you know, what she had been through and what she was being so secretive about and how I guess my reading of what is contained in this book is that a lot of your energy towards getting justice for these babies and for the victims of this home and homes like it come from a certain amount of you and the sympathy that you feel for what your mother had to live through. It would be, Gerald, absolutely, because, uh, as I said, uh, my mother would never uh, answer any of my questions and uh, I would notice her getting upset and angry even. So I think by the, uh, the time I reached my teens, I just, uh, I left her so. But the curiosity was always there. And uh, when she died in 1992, she was aged 80 and she went to her grave and brought all her secrets with her. Mm. But um, I had to find out. And it's funny, I felt guilty. It took a few months after she died. I felt guilty because I felt probably I might be um, betraying her. So um, anyway, I um, I picked up courage and I sent for a birth certificate. And lo and behold, uh, that gave me one of the answers I was looking for. Which was? Which was, it gave her name, it gave uh, her date of birth, and it gave her mother's name, Bridget. And it was a blank where the father's mm. name should have been. So I knew that by then that that uh, spelled out illegitimacy at the time. So that led me on the track then, OK. I said my poor mother was illegitimate. To me, it was so what. And uh, I had to find out why was that such a, a burden on her all her life that none of us knew. My dad wouldn't have known either. Uh, they didn't speak about them kind of things. And... Uh, here am I with this birth cert, and it was a, it was like a golden certificate to me at the time. Mm. And I said, okay, I have this tiny bit of information, which was huge. And I set out then over the following years to get every bit of information that I possibly could on her past. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And it, it you know, when people pick up this book and the way you articulate it, Catherine, like it is it's beautifully written in the same kind of words that you're using now it's very straight language of you know what you lived through without you know looking for any kind of sympathy or pity or anything like that you tell the story of how you first encountered children from the home 
as these othered children in your classroom. Now, I was interested in now that we've gotten into that stigma around illegitimacy, uh, maybe you can cast your mind back as to when you became aware of that stigma, because so much of this and so much of the discussion surrounding this since has referred to how, oh, Ireland was like this at the time and some kind of dispelling of culpability by saying, oh, sure, look, that's just what people did. You you can you can definitely relate to coming to know that these were different children to you and it not even really being explained, but teachers ignored them in the classroom. Well, that's true. Uh, children, as you know, are very, very sensitive to adults' uh, moods and their, you know, but the way they act. And uh, there was a very sensitivity in me as regarding that. And I saw immediately uh, the little faces of the girls who were in uh, the class with me in first class. I would have been about six or seven, I'd say. And uh, I can see them clearly, not exactly their faces, but I can see, I think there was about four or five on the right-hand side of the classroom, down at the back, uh, all huddled together. And they were never asked anything in class. And I suppose we were almost envious of them in that light of things. They were never included in the lessons. They just sat there, opened their books, and they were told to. And the one thing I will remember about, about them was that they were thin, they were terrified looking the whole time. They were just always terrified and frightened and the kind of jump, you know, when we get mm. up to go out to break, they just jump up and they'd stick together, really stick together. And they'd be in a different place in the playground and they just weren't included. And we were told not to mix with them. We were literally told that by the nun at the time. Was a reason that, given? Yeah. Oh, no, not at all. You just don't. Uh, some people remember... No, I don't. Some people remember uh, saying that they might have diseases and that they're sick children. And that's mm. why you're not going near them. But um, we know now, definitely, it was because, well, the, the home sisters, the Bonscore sisters, they were probably afraid that their children would start talking mm. and, and letting out secrets that went on in the home. And, you know, letting on, telling said that they were hungry, that they were afraid that they were cold, mm. that kind of thing. And, so that and was to, a good way to a degree, Catherine, yeah. they were, uh, they did have a, a disease in a sense that there was a belief that that this kind of immorality was contagious in some way, or that was what was put about the place, about the it, reason it, why it, these probably, women needed to yeah. be locked up. Well, well, exactly. That's where it came from. I, I mean, uh, of course, it came from the church and the religious at the very beginning, because I mean to say, uh, we know now how, how how women were treated back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, mm. you could say, mm. 80s maybe, and uh, treated as a different species. And that there were, I, I don't know what it was, but women were to be kept down and kept quiet mm. and controlled. The church used super control. And they would preach off the altar about the awful sin of, of, of being immortal and, and sinning and getting pregnant and, and uh, having sex before marriage was the greatest sin of all in the church. And uh, uh, as I saw, as someone's once said it, they were very fond of talking about that sin and they never stopped talking about it. And yeah. uh, it was put into women's heads. It was put into the parents' heads, of the, you know, the, in, in their head, in the, the parents of the girl. And 
I can I can remember that well about uh, if the priest said it, it was true, and you don't you don't go against the priest what he says. In the same way, Catherine, that what your mother had been through stayed with you, and the the thoughts of perhaps what that stigmatization was like for her. There is an incident that you detail in the book that stayed with you. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about maybe some of the guilt that came with it. We all know that kids are innocent in every way, even in terms of how their actions can affect others, even when it's in a supposed inverted commas prank. Uh, A trick that uh, was commonly played on these children that came to your class from the home was something that you indulged in once. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what that involved and how that stayed with you? To to my shame, it stayed in my mind because um, I remember I can see it. I can see it as clearly as anything. We were in in the uh, cloakroom at at break time to get our coats to go out in the yard. And uh, uh, I saw them, the two little homegirls in the corner and another girl came up to me and uh, she seemed to be laughing and laughing her head off. And uh, she brought me in and, you know, on the joke. And she said, I give them, she said, if you if you wrap up a sweet paper from the ground there, she said, and hand it to them, they'll think it's a sweet. And it's awful funny. So, of course, uh, me being the youngest in the family, I was used to being, you know, my, my older brother, a few years older than me, would play a lot of tricks on me. And he would tease the daylights out of me, but uh, I thought a lot of him. Hmm. But, uh, you know, it was just fun. And uh, I saw it that way and went up to the little girl. And I expected her to laugh as well when there was nothing in the paper. But instead, when she took the wrapped up paper and opened it, her face fell. And she just dropped the paper to the ground. And I could see her disappointed look. And uh, I'll never forget that because I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to upset the poor girl. But uh, I thought I thought it was funny, but it wasn't funny. Mm-hmm. And then I remember when it, it's funny. I remember these things because things would hit me very hard and it'd stick with me. It just wouldn't go away. And uh, when I went home, then I told my mother, and I expected her to fix it for me. You know, I felt yeah. so bad. And I just said, "Mom, I said I played a trick on the home baby," and she just looked at me, and uh, she had a look of kind of. Uh, disappointment or something in her and she she just said nothing when he walked away now that's the worst thing that could have happened i was expect i wanted her to talk it over with me maybe or something i don't know mm. but that stuck with me and that kind of uh, made it twice as bad but uh, yeah i mean it's only now i can see i can see in her and that's that's what told me that she knew what it was to be a home baby mm. and i would have i had no idea back then but i know now that's what that was about yeah, I mean, the fact that you essentially confessed to your yeah. mother tells yeah. you everything about the age and the impact that it had on you. And I mean, the fact that we're still talking about it now it tells you about your own conscience, but also yeah. about uh, just how these things can resonate. Because, you, you know, there is a part of me reading the book that that thought had these two things not taken place, I wonder if you would have ventured down this path at all. Because when you start looking around you, as you say, for history in the uh, community, when does it start to flood back to you the ominous presence of this home in the town? It's funny, it it took a while for it to happen. It it was probably back there at the back of my mind uh, all the time, but... uh, 
the first uh, the three essays for the uh, local uh, historical journal in Tume. It came out every year. And uh, it, that happened because, you see, first of all, when we did that history course, the year-long history course, we learned how to research where to find things, not to give up with a very, very passionate tutor who was marvellous. And he gave us, encouraged us and gave us every help that we needed. The idea was that we learn enough from the tutor mm. to do a chapter for the book of that townland, Kilcurden. That, you know, that, that, that was the whole idea of the history course. The local community wanted to do, uh, wanted to publish a book about their own area. So everyone in the class was, was, had the challenge of writing a chapter for the book. And uh, I picked uh, Kilcurn Townland itself, and I found, quite, I found out quite a lot about it through, with the help of the tutor. So that book was published then a year later when we were finished the course. Hmm. And then when the Tume, the, the Tume magazine, the local journal that comes out every year, they were impressed with the essay that I wrote for the book. And they asked me to do an essay on a landlord for, for their historical essay a book. So uh, I did three different essays over a course of a few years on different landlords. I mean, we're only out in a country area, mm-hmm. but yet there was... There were three chapters that were written about landlords, but probably within a five-mile radius, which goes to show at the time that the English were here. They had big houses, mm. and a lot of them were broken down, but there was the, the ghost of or the, just the, the skeleton of a house is left. So it, it was really that. And then they came to me and they said, would you do another essay on the fourth, for the fourth time? And I was trying to think, oh my God, I said, the home, the tomb home. You know, that was never written about. So they said, yeah, right, do do an essay on that if you can. So um, that's how that really started. And it was because I went to the local library then in Tume to see what I could get on the home. I thought it was only a matter like before of, of finding mm. um, primary sources and writing a history of the Bond Support Sisters and the orphanage as I thought it was. But um, lo and behold, there was nothing, absolutely nothing in our local town about the home. It was as if it never existed. Do you believe that was removed or that just was just undocumented? It was undocumented. And for reasons now that I know, undocumented is a good word for Gerald. Mm. So um, I kind of, uh, I was lost then. And I wrote to the Bonscore Sisters, uh, headquarters are in Cork. I wrote to our local Galway County Council because uh, they own the home itself and the land that it's on. And I wrote to, I got in contact with the, the Archbishop in Tume. Sure. And uh, anyone else I could think of. Oh, the Health Board, of course, the Western Health Board, because they were involved as well. And uh, So the building is gone thing. at this point, is that correct? Some documents remained, but I wasn't to be told about them. But the, build, uh, the actual bricks and mortar was gone. Oh, sorry. Yes. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some of the some of the ten foot high wall that surrounded the home itself, there's parts of that left, and there's the gable end of the sacristy that was in the the, the little chapel that was attached to the uh, home building. Uh, the gable end of that is left because of the six men were shot against it in the time of the uh, the civil war, and that's why that remains. Uh, it's it's a monument there. There's a monument there to them, and it's on the wall of that sacristy of the church. Hmm. 
So that's all that's left of it as regards the building. So um, I was really stuck then, and I, I said the only thing I can do is, as our tutor told us, to ask to interview people. That it's a great source, it's a primary source of information as well, if you can get them to mm. talk and get some document off them. So that was my next port of call then. That's where I started. Um, and those interviews, of course, are what produced this mention. As you say, as we talked about earlier, you, know, you ask about their family, you ask about the weather. And then at some point, uh, someone mentions a graveyard. That's right. Did, yeah. Did that immediately ring alarm bells with you or did the alarm bells only go off when this story of the young lads stumbling upon what appeared to be a tomb? Yeah, because I would have known it. You see, it was a workhouse before the Bonsecour sisters moved in and uh, with, uh, and and set up the mother and baby home. The building itself was built in the 1840s. It was a workhouse all that time. And we knew that uh, hundreds of people died in the workhouse. But I knew some of them were buried there in, in that ground mm. because um, the start, the workhouse commission, you know, the, the, the people who, who ran it, uh, we know of, the, the, you see, the workhouse is well documented, funnily enough. And uh, from that, I gathered that there were some burials there up to about 1848, I'd say. And uh, But then there were so many people dying that they opened a site, a special site for famine victims and for uh, workhouse people. So, and then it was just then when uh, somebody said to me, when they were talking about um, bodies being found or little bones being found, uh, they, the locals had presumed that, uh, they, that they were part of the workhouse burials. Mm. And uh, they thought that there was a special crypt built for them in that area. Mm. So... Uh, after that, then, it was only when um, someone said to me, it was the main, he was the caretaker of the main tomb graveyard. And it was he that brought me over to the area where the grotto is now, where it's walled off. And he said, I said, they, are they, are they, they're the famine and, and the workhouse children. And he said, he kind of said, between you and me, he said, if they're workhouse children, there's a lot of the home children there as well. And uh, I couldn't. I couldn't comprehend that because, okay, the famine, well, the famine areas are usually marked anyway, everywhere. There's a burial ground for famine victims and for workhouse people, it's marked. And there was absolutely nothing in this area, only that little grotto that the locals put up after the boys found the little remains and the little skulls. Mm. So um, you could say that was the, that's when I really started wondering. Mm. Yeah. It was really, I couldn't figure it out. And it How could there be home babies here and no, and no sign of, um, you know, a cemetery, no, nothing on the map to say it was a cemetery. It was as if they never existed. It's incredible to hear you uh, detail it because, you, you know, clear you can hear in your voice and anyone listening to this with any sort of uh, empathy in them, their internal alarm goes off. Yeah. It must have been so troubling then once you write this article, once you write this chapter and you have established that there are these unaccounted for deaths that have taken place. You've established that this number died and that there's no burial documentation for them. 
that you, obviously, Catherine, in that moment are thinking, all hell could break loose when this thing gets published, when nothing happens, when it seems as if there's a, a collective shrug as a result of this piece that you first write. And what's going on within you and your husband's minds? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, Jared, I, I really admire your statements. With <laughs> you've, you've said it in a nutshell, they're a collective shrug. Mm. I like that mm. but because that, that spells out exactly what happened. Well, that essay, well, first of all, Aidan, my husband, God love him, he said he's a great support to me, but he was terrified. He really was at I'm the sure. start. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, uh, I mean, uh, knowing people, knowing, knowing true people and knowing people like that in business and an authority, he said, you're taking on the church, you're taking on the state. Yeah. He said, the house would be taken off us. That's what, oh, that's yeah. what he used well, to say to me. Take but, it to court still, and take yeah, it to the cleaners, yeah. He backed me still, you know. He believed in me through all that. And I said, look, I said, I said, I have facts. And I said, there's 796 deaths. I have them here. They're ages of the children from infants up to three and four years. And I said, they're, they're missing. Why isn't anybody horrified? Why aren't people coming together and coming to the site? Why isn't the church ringing me? Why aren't the Bon Secours ringing me? What's happening? You know, I said, there's a cover up here. There has to be. There's no other explanation. So we ploughed on anyways, and finally then I, I was able to prove to my best ability that there was, those children are not buried in the tomb graveyard. They're not in the local graveyards. They're not in the county graveyards. I said, where are they gone? You know, I mean, does nobody care? So, I mean, a full year passed with me struggling, trying to get authorities and the church and the Bond Square sisters to get some answers. But as we know, it was only when the, the, the story went nationwide wide and mm. worldwide that the powers that be had to step up and say something. It took a year and a half nearly I struggling mean, your own, to get this out there. If anyone's ever lived through uh, an experience of not being believed or even just going to the doctor and telling them there's something wrong with my child. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean... It's such a disempowering feeling not being believed. And, you know, so much of the movements that we've seen in the last two years, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Me Too, center around just how disempowering it is to feel like the wider world doesn't care. I mean, your own mental health would, mustn't have been great, Catherine, during all of that. Well... Maybe maybe it's just the way I am. Uh, was, you could call it an absolute steel determination in me <laughs> to fight these people who didn't want to know. I felt I had to mm. be a voice for those children. And as you said earlier, you could say it goes back to my mother. She was afraid to talk. And it, it ruined her life to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. She carried a lot of baggage with her. She, she would go into very bad moods. And she would find it hard to cope at times. And it destroyed our relationship because she wasn't able. She just wasn't able to uh, communicate. And she was kind of in a world of her own a lot of the time. Yeah. And I saw that. And I, I, I maybe in, in a peculiar way, I was doing it for her as well. Because uh, when I met survivors uh, that were born in the tomb home, and when they came to me, afraid to talk, you know, I said, look, of course you can talk. They were, they were carrying this shame with them. 
And bit by bit, the more I talk to them here, they used, we used to gather here at our own kitchen. And they loved to talk here in the kitchen then. And they'd say, one would say, give account of their life. The next, the next uh, one next to them hmm. would say, well, look, this happened to me as well. And by degrees, they were getting courage. Yeah, and, and not feeling to, alone. Yeah to, yeah, to the extent that they were, in a couple of months, they were uh, capable of speaking to documentary makers, journalists, you know, and and now a lot of them are are going in public, speaking, hmm. giving an account of their lives, and it has brought them from being afraid to say I was in that home to this, which is remarkable, and I'm I'm happy that that has come out of it. Yeah, I mean, this daily determination you mentioned at the start, I guess, is how a lot of these scandals get broken. That someone says, "No, I'm I'm going to yeah. ring this bell." until right. everybody yeah. listens to it. Alison yeah. O'Reilly in the mail. Is, That's right. Is, As Alison wrote uh, the story, yeah, yes. She's she's a big part of this. Do you, yes, do absolutely. You, do you remember your first conversation with Alison? And, uh, you know, I guess there was a certain amount of trust needed for you oh, to was, yeah, go to her. I mean, after all the silence and after nobody wanting to listen for uh, uh, Alison to come down to the house here, and sit at the table with me and get the whole report and be interested. And I mean, she went to the, she went as far as uh, getting the, the, the mail on Sunday to back her up to get ground penetrating survey. Yes. Uh, of them down to tune. A huge to, turning point. Yeah, yeah. A huge, huge turning point. And uh, got it published then again in the, in the, in the mail on Sunday. And uh, she was able to prove that yes, there is definitely a big tank in this area that is, you know, it didn't look like a tomb, that it looks more like a sewage facility. But that was the, the turning point, really, for me. Uh, the evidence that I needed was uh, earlier on in my research, I studied old maps of the area, of the workhouse, and there was very uh, good maps. And on this, on the, in the place that where the boys found the bones, on this old map printed across it was sewage tank. Hmm. So I knew then it wasn't a crypt. And that was really, that really, uh, there was no turning back at that stage. Yeah, and when, I don't... When I was I, able to prove uh, that this was a sewage tank. And I kind of don't want to move past the, uh, I feel like I moved past the victims who came to your kitchen too quickly there. Because, mm -hmm. you know, an, another big part of, you know, your work with Alison O'Reilly, well, the, the headline is this, you know, just grotesque, crime took place in terms That's of the right. burial. That's right. The good headline, 800 babies found in tomb tank. I think that was it. That, uh, a brilliant but, big headline. But outside of that, you know, there there's the mistreatment of those in the home. And one that stood out for me, for example, was Michael Hessian, who was boarded out, as they say, after leaving the, the tomb home. He's kind of sent to a family essentially to work as a slave afterwards. Is that a, an accurate description of, of it what, what waited some it, of these people after their time? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Michael was the first one. It's funny, and it goes to show again many, many, many times after that, when I was looking for something or needed, needed a bit of evidence, this man in England, Michael Hessian, who was born in the home, he wrote a letter to the editor of the Tomb Herald, just coincidentally, asking, does anyone know anything about the Tomb home? I was born there. And uh, 
I couldn't believe it. And I got straight onto the editor to ask him for the contact of that man that I, you know, that I was, mm. I was doing the essay at the time. And could I possibly speak, you know, could, could you give me his, his name? So I got his name and I got his address and I wrote to him. And over the course of a year, uh, we wrote to each other and he gave an absolute detailed account of what it was like for him to be fostered out. So that was, when I get them stories, then I see the injustice and people getting away with it yeah. and people not caring what happened to them. I mean, that was enough to drive anyone to yeah. try and get justice. Of course. I mean, if, if there was any doubt in your mind, it would drive you even harder yeah. forward towards. Absolutely, yeah. What is essentially still an unresolved situation in, in many ways. Yeah. Uh, Aidan, as you mentioned, is a huge part yeah. of your life. You yeah. fell, as your, by your own description, you fell head over heels in love with him yeah. when you met uh, in your leaving certificate year. Yeah. And the support he gives you through all of this Absolutely. and the way you describe it in the book is really a truly beautiful part of the story and, you know, something really special in your life, particularly yeah. when the scene that you paint of actually going to meet the sisters to to meet some nuns uh, from the Bon Secours yeah. and how maybe you can take us through how this meeting comes to be and your own fear that this meeting could go one direction and how shocked you were with the manner in which they dealt with you when it did in fact happen. Well, I had a good inclination the way the meeting was going to go because uh, on Sunday the 25th of May, I think it was the 25th in in um, 2014. Uh, that's when the story, well, Alison O'Reilly broke the story on the front page of the Mail on Sunday, and of course it was called out in the in the morning program. Then when it's when it gives out what it says in the papers, mm. then you see Monday morning at nine o'clock, the morning after, the telephone rang, and I answered, and she said, uh, "This is Sister Mary Ryan from the Bonscore Sisters in Cork." And we want to ask you, please explain to us what is going on with what you what you're saying about about the bonds course and tune. We know absolutely nothing about it. And she didn't give me time to talk. She just says that all we know is the reporters are here at our door. They're at they're outside our gates. Our, our elderly sisters are very disturbed over it all. And she said, what is all this about? And uh, I knew straight away that they were going to be on the defense anyway. Mm. So we spoke for a while and uh, she said, will you meet? We would like to meet with you. Well, I said, no problem at all. I said, I said, will you come to Tume? Oh, she said, I don't think that's appropriate. So she said, what about Galway? So I said, OK, no problem. So I think about two weeks later, we arranged a meeting and uh, just in a quiet hotel in the suburbs of Galway. And that's where we met. And uh, it was as I expected. I didn't expect anything else. There was uh, one of the nuns were, you know, she was she was uh, kind of very approachable and asking gently, you know, wanting to know the story. And uh, the other nun was more defensive and she was more or less the same. It was the same as on the telephone conversation about how distraught they all are, that they never knew anything about this, that personally herself, she wasn't a tomb and uh, they have no records and it's the first they heard of it. And, so, and, and also uh, the, the one, one thing they repeated, yeah. if I could cut in there, Catherine, one thing that I found really shocking that kept getting repeated was, how did you find this out? 
Where That's did you right. get your information from? That's, yes. As if yes. who let yeah. the cat out of the bag in some ways? <laughs> well, it sounds like it's all right. Like, it, it you did, know, but the no. quizzing over yeah. where did you hear this? Yes. It yes, was exactly. really shocking. Uh, you yeah. call the chapter good cop, bad cop, because I know. the nicey, nicey approach on one side Coach. and then this this yeah. badgering over where did you hear this? When did you? Uh, uh, That's I, right. I mean, were you shaken afterwards? Like you, you the reason why I bring up oh, Aiden is was, because yeah. I, I, I'd imagine having somebody there with you, it gave you the strength, as you say, you you didn't respond. You kept your silence and that that essentially yeah. uh, was off putting for them. Well, when the meeting was over, I was shaking. All right. But I was shaking with anger, um, Charlotte. Uh, I, I suppose part of me naively thought that we might come to some conclusion mm. or meet again or let's talk about this or, you know, let's let, let's delve more into it. Mm. But it was a complete, absolute rejection of anything, everything that I said to them. So, um, and was well, that then, the last time you spoke yeah. to them? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, they got their PR company then on board straight away. You didn't speak to the Bond Score sisters. You spoke to Terry Prone, who was their PR consultant of our company. So they never came out again or never said anything until, lo and behold, the apology back in January this year when they had to apologise finally. Mm. I mean, that does lead us nicely on to the, the kind of officialdom and the reports that have followed since like where are you at the moment in your mind in relation to that and how uh, how the government has handled it and as i said earlier the the certain amount of culpability that was pushed back upon the people of ireland at the time i know charlotte that day in january i i could hardly speak for a good 20 minutes because i was just choked absolutely devastated that that would happen after all the years of given the commission of inquiry, the extra year, two years, three years that they that they asked for, to I mean it was supposed to, the whole commission of inquiry was supposed to be all finished in three years, they was they needed another year, so we we gave them we waited patiently mm-hmm. uh, for a, an extra three years, so six years and that's what came out of it, that it was. Um, what they did was, as we know now, it was a kind of an academic report. It was called callous, unfair, not about survivors. It was just more of statistics. And they reckon that the statistics of of the what went on in the homes, you know, the, the way the children were treated by statistics, it wasn't as bad as the industrial schools, as if that meant anything. And uh, that it was the families that threw the mothers out. And it was the more or less the... The sisters were there for a refuge. That's the first message that came out. Yeah. And I mean, everyone, survivors, they were absolutely devastated that after all this, they went up and gave an account of their lives. They sat through two hours of crying with uh, with the people who who took the account of, of, you know, of their terrible lives and of their experience of the home and losing their mothers and not knowing their mothers. And absolutely none of that came out. The, the accounts from survivors took up about... Uh, a handful of pages after hours and hours and hours of giving account to, to the Commission of Inquiry. It was appalling. It, it's a kind of, a, a more or less saying to the survivors that, you know, I mean, they don't count. Hmm. It, it's as specific as that. They just, you just don't matter. 
I mean, so that, salt in the wound isn't enough to describe yeah, what uh, exactly, yeah. it's, it's too small of a, a term because, you know, it was nearly I can vividly remember the time as well. And, you know, I've no one connected. I've no I don't. Thankfully, there's no one that I know yeah. of in, okay. in my family who was suffered in this way. But I did think for all of those victims that when does this end? Like when? Like, it does this is just this a cycle that generationally these people will be abused over and over again by officialdom. Well, they're being abused in a different way. It's yeah. true for you, Charlotte. And I mean to say, I, I, I still can't understand how the government are getting away with delaying, delaying, delaying. Uh, first of all, when the story broke that in 2017, that yes, these are the home babies that are buried in a sewage facility. Our Taoiseach at the time in the Kinney came out and said, oh, it's horrific. We're all disturbed here in government. We, we are absolutely horrified and something has to be done immediately to get those babies, give them a decent burial. That was 2017. We're here in 2021 and nothing has moved forward as such. Uh, the government decided that we need a burials bill, they need to pass a bill, a legislation to allow for for, for uh, exhumation on a mass scale. Now, that, that doesn't stand in other countries, but maybe they decided here that they needed it. So that has taken a year. And our present minister, Rodrigo Gorman, Minister for Children, finally came down to Tume. We asked him to come down to the site. He came down in early September. He asked me to meet him quietly at the site, but um, instead of that, we did have media there. We thought it only fair that a private meeting wasn't at this stage, wasn't on the cards for us. So I met him there and brought him into the site uh, where the grotto is. And I said to him, I said, Minister, I said, where you stand looks lovely. There's a grotto, there's flowers. It's well kept. But I said, that's only because the local people decided to keep it that way. And I said, under our feet, where we're standing, we are standing on th above the 23 chambers that hold the remains of little bones of babies who died and children who died in the home. They are on top of each other, just put down through an open space, which isn't big enough for a human to get into. They were dropped down, I said, one on top of the other. We know now from archaeologists that it's stated in the final report, or, or sorry, the fifth interim report, that these little bones that they took out, that there's evidence of rats gnawing on them. In, there's evidence of bits of sewage still in the tanks. And I said, time is, is getting limited for these bones before they waste away. And uh, that was only a month ago. And we haven't heard a word since of this bill being rushed or being passed. And it's, it's just... I can't understand it. I can't understand the coldness and the callous, callousness of a government and of a church in Chum. We have an archbishop in Chum, and he's not saying anything. He did apologise all right back in January. Uh, apologies are only words. They're no good. And he hasn't come forward since. And neither have the Bonscore sisters after their big apology. I mean, they actually took the onus of putting the that their congregation put the babies there. But there's this collective silence, and I don't, we don't know what's going on. And we're pressing and pushing and pleading to pass that bill so that exhumation can possibly begin in the spring of next year. 
Lyle. So that's where we're at, Derek, unfortunately. I have two final questions for you, Catherine. I really appreciate you taking the time to do the podcast and to explain things the way you have and the strength that you have to continue this fight. The first question is, is it possible that some of the delay relates to this not being an isolated case? That just as in the same way that we hear about crimes that take place in America, for example, wrongful convictions, for example, and we assume that's taking place over there. These are never isolated incidents. And I just shudder to think that this was a one-off. I just don't think it's possible that these nuns came up with this themselves, that there was so many homes of this type. There's every chance that there are more still to come out. Does that cross your mind at all uh, or am I catastrophizing? No, I'm certain of it, uh, Jared. We all know that. Uh, take Bessper and Cork, for example. There are 900, more than 900 children missing there as well. And I don't know what's going on there. There is more in Shanross Abbey. And you can be sure, we do know for certain that uh, it was a kind of a copycat thing. What happened in one home happened in another as regards as regards the ill treatment of children, as, as regards uh, uh, starvation. And uh, it's, we know well they're all linked. And one did copy another. Mm. And uh, there's no doubt. But uh, as regards the... I wonder if there could be... There are many things going on in my mind as regards the slowing down of exhuming the babies in Shum. One thing is I know that people who were in government at the time were very much involved with the home itself. And I suppose the present government are afraid of <laughs> showing them up, I suppose. And there's probably related to a lot of them that, that, were, that were there in government at the time of the homes. And uh, as well as that, there are, we don't know how many children are actually in the tank and chum. We don't know how many. There's more uh, scattered around the grounds who were put down in boxes because the sewage facility was in use at the time. So they had to mm. bury them in the grounds. The, we know there's a lot of them under a very large playground that children are playing on above them. And we know that there are uh, some mothers I couldn't count for. I mean, what's to stop them putting them, there, them down there as well? Instead of just opening up a tank, I believe the government are afraid of what else they're opening up. There are rumours of uh, illegal adoptions taking place, of baby trafficking, and perhaps we won't get the 796 if they are all exhumed. Perhaps, the, you know, the, the, uh, what's to say? Who, who are we to say that, you know, a lot of them could have been trafficked? Hmm. I think there are, a government are afraid of a lot of things that can be opened up, and they're afraid that they'll have to go to the expense of looking into the other homes as well where there are children missing. But it has to be done. There's no other question. Money doesn't, should, in my mind, money doesn't come into it. It has to be done. Or else, I mean, Tube is never going to be right until that is solved. And, and that is uh, that is solved for Tube because uh, I've been told many times I'm giving Tube a bad name. And I don't see it that way. If Tube steps up, does the right thing and brings healing to everybody, 
then we can say that Chum is a great place. Yeah, if anything, you're you're trying to clear the name of Chum. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, Catherine, you're something else. I know you. You're probably just like every uh, Irish person who hates receiving compliments. I know, I know. But We're not built that way. Let me say this: someone's listening to this now, who is in a similar battle for truth and for the rightful attention for illegality, injustice, violence, secrets that they believe need to come out. And jeepers, if I find it hard to keep going sometimes, like everyone does, with my basic life of just going through the motions, you have to have had times in this where you thought, I I can't keep going. This is too much. I know that for people that are, as I say, people listening to this who who hear echoes of what you're you've been through in the fight that they're in, you must have words to say to them to encourage them to keep going. What would you say to them? Oh, how can I answer that, um, Jared? I can only give my own experience. I can only say I I couldn't rest until I did something about this. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't try my utmost to do my part to expose the injustice. I mean, there's injustice in every corner in life. And I just believe that it's, you know, it's it's a healing for me Mm. and, and my own problems. And as as in the book, my own mental health, it's a healing in a way. It gave me it gives me a sense of uh, relief and courage, and to know that I did my best. And and that's a healing for me. With uh, I do go through mental torture, and um, I do believe there's healing in this when you go out and do something and beat all the odds and stand up, just to to uh, people who who treat others cruelly and people who are mean there are bullies left right and center everywhere yeah stand up to them because uh the more you you bend down and the worse life gets for you but stand up to everything and everybody because uh that's one thing in my mind people look up to politicians they look up to archbishops and 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 priests and everything i don't everyone one everyone is as good as one another and nobody should stand above anybody else and if people got that into their mind and just say, I'm as good as you and live that way, it will put in, you know, it will give bullies something to think about. Because in my own family, even I would have a, a bully in the house who wasn't nice. And uh, I mean, I was a child and I used to try and stand up to her. But um, you have to, you have to stand up to people and don't let anyone bully you ever. You're as good as them and better. Catherine Corliss, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And Thank you, Jared. Lovely to talk to you. Belonging is the name of the book. It's written with Catherine and Naomi Linehan, who obviously deserves a big shout out. I want to give a big shout out to Elaine at Hachette as well, who arranged this interview. And obviously to Aidan, big shout out to Aidan as well. It's a magnificent book and I feel like every Irish home at home and abroad should have it. 
I hope you'll go out and, and grab it this weekend. Catherine Corliss, thank you so much. And hopefully our paths will cross in person soon. And hopefully, Jared. Thank you. There is nothing more that needs to be said after an interview like that with a person like that. Just a huge thank you to Catherine, to Aidan, to Elaine for making this episode possible. I'm massively grateful to all of you. The book, Belonging, is out now and all the royalties go to Tiernan Oak, the orphanage that she's chosen to donate all of her royalties. An amazing woman, an amazing conversation. Very grateful to have had it. Probably the sister episode to this one would be the Philomena Lee episode, which is available in the archive over on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad, which is, of course, how we fund this show, how we keep the lights on at Irishman Abroad is through the generosity of our listeners, our members for the price of a coffee each month. You can gain access to every single episode we've ever recorded and we can continue making episodes like this for you to listen to wherever you are in the world. The Patreon app is actually the way that a lot of people are enjoying them at the moment. You download the app and you sign up that way. It's only a five or a month or whatever you think you can afford. It is the only way that we're still here. And in return, as I say, I think you're getting decent value with an episode with Sonia Sullivan every Tuesday, Mary McKeown on a Friday, and of course the big interview each Sunday. I will talk to you later in the week. Brian Connolly's on sound. John Mar does the extra research. And Tina and Mikey make it all possible as always.